1: Uh, He was the master and he will be missed. Music legend Eddie Van Halen passed away yesterday at the age of 65. He had on and off been battling different kinds of cancer for about 10 years now and boy did I ever spend the afternoon learning a lot about him. What an amazing talent that he had to talk more about all of that. We're joined now by uh, music publicist Eric Alper. Good morning Eric.
2: Good morning. Thanks for having me this morning.
1: Well, I heard so many stories, which I'm sure you already knew, about Eddie Van Halen. (laughs) For instance, that one about the way he played the guitar solo on Michael Jackson's Beat It. In one take, no rehearsal, just walked in and did it?
2: Yeah, and he didn't actually tell his front man of Van Halen, David Lee Roth, that he was going to do it. Because David Lee Roth didn't like Michael Jackson. He saw him as competition. So Eddie Van Halen didn't tell anybody that he was doing it. And here we were all music snobs, you know. The metal people didn't hang out with uh, people who like disco and so forth. And then Eddie Van Halen walks in, listens to the song once, does the guitar song, uh, the uh, solo, and does it for free and what? walks out. And, and and ironically, the the so- the album that Van Halen was working on called 1984. That's the one that has Jump in Panama it was stuck at the number two position on Billboard for weeks and weeks and weeks, never hitting number one because Michael Jackson's Thriller was there for 36 <laughs> weeks.
1: Wow. Like, And he never learned how to read music.
2: No. I mean, you know, that family was broke. They had no money. They didn't certainly have money for uh, for instruments. So not only did he literally have to learn how to play the guitar from scratch, is every time that he looked at those fancy pedals or, or you know, tricks and boxes that all the other guitarists had, he realized that he was never going to be able to afford them. So he better figure out how to use his brain and his fingers in order to kind of learn how to play and recreate what people were doing on stage. And that's where... All of it comes from, it's just that passion that those greats have, whether we're talking about Eddie Van Halen or anybody else in business or in art, when nobody is looking, that's when you practice. And Eddie Van Halen certainly did that for thousands of hours.
1: And is it fair to say, like he once was asked, I I saw that, uh, you know, why didn't you ever make a solo album? And he said he felt he didn't need to because whatever he wanted to do, he did with Van Halen, (laughs) even with all the changes and the different people. That really was his band.
2: Yeah, you know, he was absolutely that driver of the band. And there there's very few bands in music history that changed lead singers and and had, you know, just as much or even more success. Genesis was one of them with Peter Gabriel and, yeah. of course, Phil Collins and maybe ACDC. And other than that, there hasn't been a lot that have had two singers in David Lee Roth who were just so fun and so energetic. And then, you know, the more adult rock and roll of Sammy Hagar. And, and you know, I think that's what when people talk about that there's no good band. Out there, or that I don't know what to listen to. I think they're really talking about that spirit of rock and roll that that Eddie Van Halen certainly brought to music.
1: How uh, how much of a talent was this? Like we know it was a huge talent, but when you, would you put him as one of the greatest of all time?
2: Yeah, I put him right up there with Jimi Hendrix, maybe, and Jimmy Page. One, two, and three, completely interchangeable with Jimmy and and uh, Jimmy from uh, from from Led Zeppelin. And I think probably even you know even higher as time goes on because. When something like this happens, their streams go through the roof, their sales goes through the roof, and who knows, there might be a new guitar god out there in five years that was influenced because, unfortunately, of Eddie's passing.
1: Let's talk about the breakthrough album that they had. You mentioned 1984. How significant was that for them?
2: Well, if you were between the ages of right now, 35 and 50, you probably remember watching much music, and it seems like every third video (laughs) was Jump or Panama. Or Hot for Teacher. Or they were, you know, on every single MTV music video award show for years. And, and that, I mean, so massive. Even before that album, they were selling 15 million copies in three years of their first three records. If they would have quit back then, we still would have been talking about them today, this morning, of of The Influence. But then that just brought him into that stratosphere of just nonstop touring. And, and uh, still one of the, you know, two um, rock bands in history to have sold more than 10 million copies for two separate albums. It's, it's unheard of at the time. And, and unfortunately, you know, it's one of those things where you realize just how big they were only when you're looking back and saying, wow, there's not too many bands that scaled those heights.
1: That is so true. Eric, thanks so much for your time this morning. Thanks so
2: much for having me. We'll talk soon.
1: Yes, that's Eric Alper, music publicist, remembering Eddie Van Halen for us. Amazing stories, amazing talent. Let's talk about some federal politics, shall we? We have been seeing lots of poll results when it comes to our provincial election here, but there's some new polling out of Ottawa this morning that shows Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's popularity has remained fairly consistent so let's find out more about that. Joining us now is Ipsos Public Affairs CEO Daryl Bricker to talk about this poll done exclusively for Global News. Good morning, Daryl. Good morning. I found these results really interesting because so much has happened, right? The Conservatives got a new leader. Aaron O'Toole has been you know, quite effective in the House of Commons, but doesn't look like a whole lot has changed.
3: Yeah, the Liberals have got a little bit of a bounce, so they have uh, created about a five-point gap between themselves and the Conservatives. But... Uh, um, mostly, I would say, interestingly enough, in the province of British Columbia and in, uh, in Ontario. And when you take a look at who the people are um, that have rallied a bit more to the flag, it's actually older voters, not younger voters. So I wonder if that's, uh, you know, maybe a bit more habitual related to the liberal brand and, uh, and the need to, uh, I guess, pay attention to what's going on in Ottawa. So we'll see if this is an enduring thing. It hasn't proven to be very enduring through this crisis, though.
1: So where do the parties sit at this point?
3: Uh, we have the Liberals in the mid 30s, so they're about 35, and we have the Conservatives down around uh, around uh, uh, closer to 30. So there's about a five five point cap. But we've got the NDP uh, at around 20, uh, which is uh, uh, if they got that in an election campaign, would be the second best they'd ever performed in an election. So uh, it's quite competitive out there. Uh, they're not experiencing at the federal level the same type of, um, I would say, uh, performance enhancement that's taken a place uh, as a result of COVID at some of the pro- for some of the provincial governments. Mm-hmm. Although I think as we get into the second wave, that's going to be a bit more of a challenge for them. Uh, but the, the liberals, you know, not, don't seem to be able to break out. And the conservatives, even with a new leader, uh, really aren't catching up. So we're, we're kind of stuck.
1: It sure sounds like it then. So have you noticed any kind of changes over the last six months that we've been in this thing?
3: No, I'd say most of them are sort of fluctuating within very narrow bands. The biggest challenge for the Conservative Party is just that, you know, we're not in a regular partisan environment. So right. governments are, are seen as being more like public service agencies than, um, than like, uh, like normal partisan political institutions. Uh, where the, the Liberals got themselves in trouble previously and where the, where the prorogation took place, where the, the House of Commons was stood down, uh, was uh, that uh, the Liberals were really suffering from that in comparison to other governments in, 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 the, uh, in the nation. So uh, they've come back out, they've had their speech from the throne, they've got back on more of this public service type footing, and that's why you're, we're seeing the Prime Minister almost every day. Out there, uh, you know, sitting in, uh, sitting in on the healthcare briefings, right. and that kind of thing, because they've got to take on more of that position that uh, that some of the provincial governments have uh, have established. So uh, I would say, so successfully through the course of this pandemic.
1: That's so interesting. What you say though about perhaps people's perceptions of government have changed a little bit. That if you do view it as government needs to do something right now, maybe in regular times you don't think the government should be that involved, but this is an exception.
3: Yeah, so it's, it, Canadians um, in time of crisis turned to the governments for leadership. So what their expectation is, is that they're going to perform as public service organizations. They're there to help and to lead. Mm-hmm. They're not there to do things for partisan political advantages, which is why the, the WE scandal was so difficult for the, for, the, for the federal liberal right. party. But in British Columbia, for example, although you know calling the election when they did might be seen as a as a, a different uh, uh, you know a, a different characterization of what the government's been up to, but the Horton government's done pretty well on this. And you can go right across the country, uh, and you can see very few exceptions to governments not experiencing um, all-time highs in terms of performance relative to public opinion. You know, in, in Ontario, Quebec, Alberta's down a little bit, but they've got other issues. But almost every single government is experiencing. Um, relative highs in terms of people's acceptance of performance because they want them, the public wants them to perform well. The public service organizations that are leading us through a crisis, not partisan political institutions, at least not at the moment.
1: And right, did it break down by gender? Were there any differences, men versus women?
3: Yeah, and we all, that's a really good question, Sini, because we always have a conversation about the gender gap, but there's yeah. two gender gaps in Canada. There's the gender gap that the conservatives have with women, so they don't do as well with women as they do with men, and right. it's a pretty big gap, like over ten points. But the liberals have the same problem, except the other way: they don't do as well with women as they or they don't do as well with men as they do with women. So if this was an election that was held only among men, um, the Conservative Party would win a majority. Right. If this was an election only held among women, the Liberal Party would win a majority. So the the gap goes both ways. Not only do the Conservatives have to improve their, uh, their uh, uh, position with female voters in Canada, the Liberal Party has to improve its position with male voters in Canada.
1: Interesting, too. And so was it, obviously, there's the regional differences as well, but those seem to stay fairly static,
3: Uh, The Liberals are up a bit in British Columbia, but then again, small sample sizes. Uh, They're up a bit in Ontario, which is really damaging for the Conservatives because that's where they have to win the election. But the place where the Liberals have not established the lead that they need in order to form a majority is is Quebec, where the Bloc Québécois is still very competitive. The Liberals have a bit of a lead, but it's not Mm -hmm. big enough.
1: Interesting stuff. Daryl, thank you.
3: My pleasure. Thanks.
1: That's Daryl Bricker, Ipsos Public Affairs CEO, talking about the latest polling that they have done for Global News, taking a look at the federal party picture and where things stand fairly steady, actually. Uh, The Prime Minister's popularity in terms of the Liberal Party, fairly consistent. I thought there would be more of a bump for Aaron O'Toole as the new leader of the Conservatives. He got quite a lot of publicity, chance for people to get to know him. That has not yet happened but we'll see what unfolds. (laughs) All right, we're talking about masks this morning. Yes, we are, because Canada just hit a record of of new cases
4: for a single day, 2,364 new cases in one day. BC reported 102 cases yesterday, so not a record for us, but we are tracking by Friday to hit a total of 10,000 cases overall here in this province. And interestingly enough, I actually received an email from from someone yesterday named Jesse. I won't say where they live. They said, I have a question. What do you do if you have a family member who refuses to wear a mask? Jesse said, because I have a family member who is coming to our families, in brackets, small, thanksgiving dinner so what should i do i thought that was just such a timely and interesting question for anybody who will be visiting their family this thanksgiving what do you do if you have a family member who isn't complying with the rules
1: so okay i guess i have questions do they mean they want this they want people to wear a mask when they're like socializing at their house for this small thanksgiving dinner or this person just doesn't wear a mask like ever to go into stores or anything like that
4: Mm. See, my impression was that this family member doesn't wear them when they go into stores. They don't really believe in oh, in what? wearing masks or they just don't commonly wear masks out and about. So now you have this person saying, well, I'm supposed to visit this family member this upcoming weekend. I'm supposed to have dinner with them. You know, oh, do I want to be interacting with this person? Because it. I know, you know, I've been hearing through the family grapevine that they're not wearing their mask or they really don't want to or don't believe
1: in wearing a mask. Mm, that would make me uncomfortable because like some of us have worked so hard to keep our bubbles really small. You know I mean yeah. my my closest friend I haven't seen her in months and normally we would spend Thanksgiving together uh and we 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 spent for the last 20 years we have spent everything I make turkey for oh, wow. her and her husband and we will not be doing that this year uh because she is I'm bubbled she is bubbled in a very strict bubble uh, because she also works in a long-term care home so uh. she can't like you know I even we, we agreed like oh no it's just not possible for her to come over because she can't even expand that bubble in any way, shape, or form. So, yeah, th- that's frustrating there when you hear stories like that.
4: Yeah, it is. And, you know, big respect to your friend for for taking it so seriously. Of course, she has to. And, and it's really good she to does. hear that. She absolutely does. Yeah. I know these are conversations that we've had in my own family when you talk about the size of the bubble because there are some grandkids or nieces and nephews who are now back in school once again. Yeah. So, so we have to be even more yeah. careful. Exactly. And, you know, if you're now interacting with that, you know, aunt or uncle who has nieces and nephews who are in school, suddenly now you are expanding your bubble to include all the kids at that school as well or all the kids in that cohort. Yeah. So I think that these bubble conversations are something that people are going to be having uh, continually through the fall, but especially with Thanksgiving coming up. You know, what do you do if, if you know, you have a family member who has a really large bubble? bubble if you could even call it a bubble at that point it's not or it's not at that point it's uh, or they don't take it seriously it's the the dome from the stephen king
1: novel that's what it is
4: (laughs) i love it or on the other hand if they don't take it seriously and they're not wearing a mask
1: yeah listen i'm really gonna miss her because she's the one who did all the dishes I (laughs) I did the cooking, I did the cooking, and then she did the cleanup, and boy was that ever fantastic. So it is. This is a hardship for me to not have her here. But you're right. What to do about a relative or a friend who just refuses to do that, and then is going to be coming over, and you're going to spend time with them? I just I don't know. These days, Dr. Henry said the other day, we are flattening the curve again, and I would be very reluctant to change anything that we're doing in that regard right now.
4: Yeah, I mean, I don't know if you heard this story out of Toronto, but police charged two people with failing to comply with federal quarantine rules. So this story, you know, it's so nutty. Basically, these people came back from being abroad. You're supposed to quarantine for 14 days to monitor your symptoms. You stay, you know, in a very, very small bubble, just, you know, alone. And then, you know, after that, you're able to go out in in public once again, once it's deemed safe. So not only did they not quarantine properly, but they broke their quarantine to people in their 30s. They broke their their quarantine by attending an anti-mask rally. So 500 people participated in this anti-mask rally. So, of course, they're not wearing masks. And there's 500 people gathered together.
1: This couple break quarantine and that's where they go. They go to the anti-mask rally. So now they're being criminally charged. Well, yeah. Have they not seen the numbers in Toronto, in the Toronto area, the problems they've been having? and Even with testing now, they're not even doing contact tracing because they said they're so overwhelmed with the number of people getting tests. Yeah, absolutely. In
4: Ontario they just had five hundred and forty eight new cases yesterday. Seven more people died. That brings their total case count up to fifty five hundred or sorry, um fifty five thousand fifty five thousand three hundred and sixty two people so far Unreal. in Ontario who've contracted the virus and They've done 4 million tests. So, you know, there's a lot, of, a lot of people who have been falling ill with the virus there. It's certainly something to be taking seriously no matter where you are in the
1: country. Would you not go then to this event if you knew there was going to be somebody there who had been mm. not as careful, not, you know, not as stringent, doesn't believe in wearing masks? Would you say, you know what, I'm going to sit this one out. I'm going to stay home. Now, by this event, do you mean the, the Thanksgiving dinner anti-mask no, rally no, 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 no. or you mean the Thanksgiving dinner? <laughs> I mean the Thanksgiving dinner. Would you skip it?
4: Ah, that's a that's a great question. I would be inclined to. Ah, that's you know what? That's a great question for the buzz line as well. 331 buzz. How do you deal with a family yeah. member like this? Would you sit that family dinner out? I think I might. Yeah. I yeah. think I might actually do that. All would right. you as well? Thank you, Nikki.
1: Thanks to me. We've been very lucky over the last six months or so since this pandemic started to have certain people who have managed to explain it to us in ways that we can understand and bring that information home to us. And of course, one of the best of that is Jason Tetro. He has been on with us countless times during COVID-19, explaining it to us, our response to it, what we need to be doing. Well, Jason's multi-award winning podcast, The Super Awesome Science Show, is back for another season. And Jason is back with us to talk about it. Hello,
5: Jason? Hello there.
1: It's so nice to have you on for something that's not some kind of COVID-19 emergency at this point.
5: Oh, I know. Uh, and yet my show actually has had to pivot from things like ufology and mixology to, uh, unfortunately, understanding a little bit more about what's happening with COVID-19.
1: Yeah, so what are you going to be exploring this
5: season? So what we're doing is we're going to be talking about some of the big controversial topics that people just seem to be confused about, and we're going to give you the science that actually comes from the people who have done the work. You have to understand, um, you know, for me, infectious disease research was thirty years of my life, and I've made numerous contacts and colleagues along the way. And I brought them onto the show to have these discussions so that you get information that you can use, like literally, as soon as you finish listening to the podcast. <laughs>
1: Okay, that's the kind of stuff I think people like, but what kind of information?
5: So we're going to be talking about uh, airborne infection. Actually, we're going to be talking with Stephen Rogak from the UBC about that next week, so you've got to tune in. Um, we're going to be also talking about what happens when panic sets in. Um, you know, is it only toilet paper that tends to run away? Uh, we're also going to speak a little bit about grief and, and, you know, what happens when you do find yourself either infected or you find someone who happens to be infected, who you love, and, and how you go through that process. We're also going to talk a little bit about vaccines and, and when we get back to travel, what are we going to do? Um, but everything that you're going to hear about relates to your day-to-day activities and how you can take this information and help you either to calm your mind, calm your soul, or mm-hmm. actually protect your lungs.
1: Now, Jason, you're an infectious disease expert, so you know that information changes, right? That's the way kind of epidemiology works. But do you think the general public has struggled with that?
5: I think what has happened is that we've been talking about um, terms that are normally used within, you know, a, a specific um, environment or a specific subject matter, and we're trying to get people to understand that without giving them all the background. And I think the perfect example happens to be something that you have seen numerous times. You Remember those graphs that uh, uh, Dr. Henry have shown where right. we talked about 50%, 60%, 7%, 80%?
1: Yeah.
5: I mean, for me, that makes absolutely perfect sense. But for somebody who doesn't really understand what a contact actually is, it makes it very difficult for them to understand. So let me put it to you this way. Um, For every average adult, we go through about 25 to 30 contacts a day, which means that we would probably be reducing that to 15 or less a day. Now, children, especially uh, children who are in school, they can have up to 300 contacts a day. Wow. So if you actually reduce that down to 60%, you know, it's coming down to about 200. Now, thankfully, we can do that. And this is what BC has been doing. And that's one of the reasons why you're not seeing this explosion of cases like you normally would with RSV, influenza, and other respiratory viruses. So when it comes down to it, what you see is in those graphs actually has a lot of information behind it. And I think that's what we're trying to do with the Super Awesome Science Show is give you some perspective as to what those numbers really mean to your life, as opposed to just seeing graphs that you kind of look at and go, "Mm, I don't really understand what that means.
1: Now, is there a question, like a burning question you have that you really want to tackle this
5: season? I think for me, it really happens be the vaccine, because we're really heading into uncharted territory. And uh, Peter Hotez, I'm sure you've heard of him. Everybody's heard of him. He's a good friend of mine. We actually sit down and we have a nice chat about vaccines, what he's been doing, because he's been in vaccines for as long as I've been in infectious disease research. And so it's a really great discussion. Um, It's coming up in a few weeks, and I think it's going to give you a perspective as to why we have such um, a focus on vaccines, Mm. but also why this is such an impressive time because we've got vaccines from all sorts of different environments and 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 sciences and it's just going to be fascinating and it's not about who's going to get to the poll first it's about how many of them are going to be available for all of us
1: all right jason thank you and good luck with the new season
5: Uh, thank you so much take care
1: you too that's jason Tetro, infectious disease expert and host of the super awesome science show podcast which is kicking off a new season so make sure you check it out
6: they didn't study the combination of diseases which is what fish experience in the wild, uh, and they left off sea lights, which have clearly not been under control lately, and the farms can't control them anywhere in the world.
1: Now that is Jay Richland with the David Suzuki Foundation. He spoke to us last week. They're one of the groups uh, very concerned about a study on how farmed salmon impact wild salmon. This, of course, has been a hot topic in BC for years now. And they were concerned that not enough attention was paid in this report to the impact of sea lice. So we thought let's get some response to this from the Department of Fisheries and Oceans. So joining us now is Jay Parsons, the Director of Aquaculture, Biotechnology, and Aquatic Animal Health with Fisheries and Oceans Canada. Jay, thank you so much for joining us.
7: Thank you, and good morning.
1: How much emphasis was there put on studying sea lice when it comes to the effect that farm salmon have on wild salmon? So
7: sea lice are a naturally occurring parasite that occurs in the water of BCs, and it's been around for thousands of years, and they naturally um, infect wild fish. The department has been conducting studies on sea lice for quite a long time, and there exists a real um, large knowledge of sea lice um, and the impacts and interactions of sea lice between wild fish and farmed fish. And using that body of knowledge... The department has provided um, science advice to our aquaculture managers that they have used to put in place measures to ensure that um, any harm as a result of sea lice from fish farms is minimized.
1: So what does that body of knowledge tell us, though? Are there concerns about harm?
7: Certainly there is the potential for harm. From sea lice on wild Pacific salmon, especially the smaller juvenile salmon, and that's why the department, um, based on the science advice and the research that we've conducted, as well as research from other people, by the way, um, this has been used to inform measures by the department to ensure that the any potential impacts from fish farms are minimized.
1: I guess the question there, Jay, would be then, if we know that there are the potential for some negative impacts, why are we even allowing this?
7: The, um, again, um, the, the department has put measures in place through policies, through regulations, through conditions of licenses to minimize those impacts so that there is no harm to the wild fish.
1: And so, do you think that then there is no harm right now to the wild fish from the sea lice from the farm salmon?
7: Again, from a science perspective, we've conducted a lot of research into looking into these uh, interactions, and that has formed um, that has informed uh, aquaculture management's decisions around managing this industry. There's been a number of um, regulations and conditions that have been in place for a long time. New measures were recently introduced. And I know our aquaculture management colleagues um, continue to consider other measures um, as well as continue their discussions, um, especially with the First Nations uh, in the Discovery Islands areas. There is a series of consultations that are now underway to have discussions with them to hear what their concerns are um, about farms in those areas.
1: So then, Jay, if there is such a large body of knowledge, as you said there, and that you believe the DFO is, is putting into place these measures, where do you think then these concerns still come from?
7: Um, uh, again, um, I think, um, yes, I, I mean, I understand there are concerns from a number of different uh, people, including um, First Nations. Um, we, uh, we are holding discussions and consultations with them um, to present and talk to them about the science, as well as the measures that uh, are in place, and to hear further about what those concerns are and try to address those concerns. Um, but also, um, we do continue to undertake much research um, to help inform management's decisions and their risk-based adaptive management uh, uh, process that they have in place for um, consideration of additional measures in the future.
1: Yeah, what kind of considerations then for additional measures in the future? What are we looking at here?
7: Um, really, the um, those measures, I would encourage you to talk to our uh, aquaculture management colleagues who are the ones um, that are um, having those discussions and doing those considerations. Um, I'm certainly well aware um, that the department has announced recently, earlier this year, new measures. And I know they are considering other measures, for example, around area-based approaches to aquaculture management. So, But um, our aquaculture management colleagues would certainly be able to elaborate much further on the management measures that they've put in place and are considering.
1: So when you do your work then, Jay, are you just looking at the impact of sea lice or do you take into consideration that fact that we have a lot of concerns about the numbers of wild salmon stocks?
7: The, the department uh, undertakes and puts a, a high priority on investigating all impacts on wild salmon. Um, the recent um, reports that we've released the risk assessments, for example, Um, we identified um, what are the known bacterial and viral pathogens on Atlantic salmon farms in the Discovery Island area. And we undertook a series of risk assessments to specifically look at what those impacts were on Fraser River sockeye salmon. Mm -hmm. So we undertook a robust, um, thorough analysis of what those uh, impacts were to to make a determination on what the risk would be to Fraser River sockeye salmon. So that's just one example of some of the type of research and advice that we've done. Um, But there continues to be research on many aspects related to impacts on wild Pacific salmon that the department undertakes. And certainly as that new knowledge becomes available, that does help inform our aquaculture managers and our other Um, resource managers into um, adaptive management measures that they might wish to adopt.
1: All right, Jay, thank you for your time on this today.
7: Well, thank you very much for the opportunity to appear on your show today.
1: That is Jay Parsons, Director of Aquaculture, Biotechnology and Aquatic Animal Health at Fisheries and Oceans Canada, talking about the continuing concerns of sea lice on farmed salmon and how they affect wild salmon stocks. I guess my question is, after all these years, and he says there's all this knowledge and body of work out there, then why do we still have questions? Why are there still concerns? How can we not answer that definitively? Because I think for a lot of people, it's still not completely settled. If you want to weigh in, send me at cknw.com. All right, let's talk about the BC election campaign. One of the interesting things we heard yesterday, NDP leader John Horgan committing to a silver alert program for missing seniors if the NDP government is elected. Our next guest would certainly have something to say about that. It's Sam No. He became a Silver Alert advocate after his own father went missing in 2013. Sam, thanks for being back with us.
6: Hi, thanks for having me.
1: So what did you think when you heard this? You must have been a bit happy about that.
6: Uh, you know, for sure, I was quite excited. Um, but, you know, but however, regardless of who we have in government in the fall, I mean, missing seniors with dementia is a pressing issue. I mean, this is a growing problem with our Asian population.
1: And so tell us about the system that you envision that you have been campaigning for. How would this work?
6: So we've been envisioning a geo-targeted system because critics of the program are concerned that too many alerts would be issued. Um, However, we also do have to realize that not all seniors, missing seniors, would reach the alerting level um, as well as... um, You know, we're able to geo-target these alerts to issue alerts to relevant communities instead of notifying the whole province of British Columbia. Right. Because we're also, uh, lost person behavior research does tell us they only travel within a few kilometers from their last point seen.
1: Okay, so if you're saying then, let's say a senior went missing in Port Coquitlam, then the alert would only be pushed to people in Port Coquitlam?
6: Within a small radius. So there's research that tells us uh, 95% of the time they're found within a five-kilometer radius. And so, you know, there's there would be no need to notify the whole province or the whole greater Vancouver for a missing person in Port Coquitlam.
1: Okay, so what what kind of trouble have you had getting this launched, Sam? Like, what are the, the fights against it for?
6: And, and so one of the main concerns has been alert fatigue, which, which we've been talking about right yes. now. And it's absolutely frustrating. We need to get past this, uh, you know, dementia is a growing problem. You know, 6 out of 10 do wander. And so uh, we need to continue this discussion Um as this pro- problem continues to get worse every year.
1: And I see this all the time. I see police issue, you know, alerts saying, please be on the lookout for this senior. This, And I know that, you know, for the most part, people respond very well, but do you feel that there's some people who still that still don't get those messages? Uh,
6: you know, I, I think there's quite a bit of uh, public support for this. Uh, we saw with my, my father's disappearance seven years ago. Uh, General Sangara went missing earlier this year. There's a right. lot of public support. Um, You know, I I do believe that we have to be more efficient at issuing these alerts. And so if someone went missing in your neighborhood, most likely you're going to pay attention. But, you know, if someone went missing out in Vancouver and you don't even live there, you know, it would be irrelevant to you. So I think there are tremendous opportunities to improve uh, these alerts.
1: So what would your advice be to the political parties then?
6: Uh, you know, let's continue this discussion. We've been talking about this for the last seven years. This problem is even far worse than when my father went missing, and and so you know I'm happy about the news, but of course I will hold them accountable to it if they do get elected.
1: Sam, when your dad went missing, how much of a struggle was it to get the word out there?
6: Oh, you know, uh, I mean, we were chasing sightings. You know, behind a couple days and there were confirmed sightings of him but words spread quite slowly and i truly do believe if we had the silver alert in place that you know he he may have made it home that day
1: right if something like this had existed that's correct sam thank you very much for your time on that
6: Thank you for having me.
1: That's Sam now. He's an advocate for silver alert. You may remember the story of when his dad went missing back in 2013. And ever since then, Sam has been an advocate for having some kind of silver alert system. It was promised in the NDP campaign platform yesterday, But as you heard Sam there say, we need to kind of make it a little bit more specialized. He said geo-target that so that not everybody is getting it. He doesn't want to have alert fatigue. People need to pay attention when they get an alert kind of put right in front of them. And he thinks that would make the difference here. So what do you think? Is this a good idea? Would you like to see this happen? I
7: don't know much about the movement other than I understand they like me very much, uh, which I appreciate. But I don't know much about the movement.
1: That is U.S. President Donald Trump talking about the QAnon conspiracy theories that seem to run amok on social media. Well, yesterday we heard the news that Facebook has taken the extraordinary step of deleting all the pages that are associated with that QAnon conspiracy. We wanted to talk about how significant this is. So joining us now is Jane Litmanenko, who's a senior reporter at BuzzFeed, specializing in disinformation. Jane, thanks for being with us.
8: Thanks for having me.
1: How big of a deal do you think this was?
8: So this is just the latest ban that Facebook has announced against the QAnon um, conspiracy or mass delusion. And it's, uh, it's the biggest step after a series of bans, but it still leaves some loopholes for people who support um, this belief system to remain on the platform. So while this is a big deal, it's still not. It's still not as comprehensive as people who are studying this. Um, this uh, be- set of beliefs uh, are requesting.
1: Right. How bad has it gotten, though? Like for Facebook to take a step like this when they have been pressured to do similar things, right, for years now. Why now? Why
8: now is a great question. Uh, the QAnon. Uh, the QAnon belief system which is quite insidious, has been around since 2017, and it has grown a lot over the last three years. And uh, this isn't the first time that Facebook announced a sort of a a blanket ban on a type of content. We've seen them say that they will remove anti-Muslim hate from their platform, for example, after the Christchurch shooting in New Zealand. So while while this is a big deal... Um, it, it feels like it's a, it's it's quite late uh, for them to be taking that step because the community has grown uh, quite large, and uh, the why now question lingers. It's it's less than thirty t- days before the election, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and uh, many researchers that uh, we've spoken to are wondering why this didn't happen sooner.
1: So you specialize in disinformation then how critical has this particular conspiracy theory been in terms of spreading disinformation?
8: It's been quite insidious and uh, this 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 conspiracy theory is particularly damaging when it comes to the coronavirus pandemic. Um, early on people who believe in QAnon or QAnon related um, conspiracies didn't take the pandemic seriously. They are among groups of people who um, sort of either believe that the entire thing is faked, which would, would be quite a production, um, but they also um, oppose vaccines. Um, many of them oppose wearing masks. Um, so it's it's Uh, they've been a huge node uh, when it comes to spreading disinformation on social media.
1: It also sounds like it has become a bit of an umbrella thing, right? For anybody who doesn't believe in something or they believe in some kind of conspiracy theory, now they're under that umbrella too.
8: Yes, absolutely. And something that we saw this summer is even though QAnon um, grew out of another conspiracy that focused on Sort of bogus child trafficking, as opposed to real child trafficking um it Q&A in itself didn't didn't take up this cause until this summer so So, whereas when it started out, it was really uh, adamant about being a pro-Trump community. Now, many people who buy into offshoots of this belief system aren't necessarily supporters of the president. Some of them aren't even quite sure that they are supporters of QAnon, but they buy into the belief system, and. One of the um, one of the most prominent uh, recent actions that QAnon has or QAnon supporters have uh, uh, focused on is a campaign called Save the Children, where uh, there's there's this belief that Hollywood uh, people in Hollywood and politicians are sort of uh, trafficking, Mm -hmm. uh, trafficking children. Um, And of course, child trafficking is a real, real problem. Human trafficking is a real problem. But the conspiracy is very much removed from reality and has hindered real efforts, um, real efforts to help child trafficking victims.
1: So by not having this on there, though, do you think this will actually slow anything down? Has social media become the number one place where people disseminate these kinds of conspiracy theories?
8: Well, it's important to remember that Facebook is just one social media network. And especially with the ban that Facebook has announced, uh, Instagram, personal Instagram accounts might not be caught by it. It's still, the jury's still out on how effective this will be. And bans that Facebook has announced in the past have definitely been skirted um, and skirted widely. But we also have YouTube that is a huge, a huge place for QAnon supporters to gather, to watch videos, to um, converse. And Twitter has also, although it's, uh, it has announced its own QAnon bans in the past, it's also a huge place where they meet. But even outside of the major social media networks, QAnon started on a very niche anonymous forum on a corner of the internet right. that most people aren't aware of. So, so Facebook is just one part of a big problem.
1: Okay, so that's that's what I wonder too, because we've always had conspiracy theories, right, Jane? Like, but this these these ones just seem to be amplified now.
8: Yeah, absolutely. Conspiracy theories have always been part of uh, of human life. I mean, the the moon landing, you know, you name it. I don't want. Yeah. I don't want to. Oh, the hollow moon, even
1: uh, something don't was, give them more to talk about. Yes,
8: <laughs> yes, <laughs> but uh, but the trouble is that whereas uh, previously there were a lot of barriers to communication um, from one conspiracy theorist to another, now um, these communities are gathering together with ease, and they are um, supporting one another. They are they're. Um, they're sort of, uh, they have a place to go, they have a right. place to converse. And uh, that's, that's what's different this time.
1: So wouldn't it be better than if a company like Facebook didn't wait until it was well established? Do they need something more robust to look at these things to nip them in the butt?
8: Yes, absolutely. And that's, that's, part of a bigger conversation regarding how social media companies address false and dangerous and extremist content on their platforms. We've seen them shut down communities that have uh, caused violence, or we've seen them um, remove hateful posts after they get a lot of traction. Mm -hmm. But it's tricky to understand how much of that enforcement um, happens before something terrible happens or before these communities grow. Um, like I said previously, QNON started in 2017 and and uh, it's grown a lot over the last three years. Um, there's There's no reason why it should have been allowed to do that.
1: Jane, thanks so much for your time on this today.
8: Thank you very much for having
1: me. Well, lovely to have you here. That is Jane Litvinenko, who's a senior reporter at BuzzFeed specializing in disinformation, talking about Facebook's announcement yesterday that they are taking what is for them an extraordinary step of deleting all pages that are associated with that QAnon conspiracy. Will that make any kind of a difference, though? That we have to wait and see. I want to talk about a new study just out this morning, actually, that highlights the climate impact of nitrous oxide. And the study suggests that agriculture might be the biggest contributor to the problem. So let's break it down. What have we learned from this? Joining us now is Dr. Taylor Mavara, who's the author of this study and a Hutchinson Fellow at the School of the Environment at Yale University. Dr. Mavara, thank you for being with us. Thanks so much for having me, Simi. So what exactly did you look at in this study?
9: So this is a... um one of the first kind of comprehensive global nitrous oxide budgets that's um, been published. And so just to give like a bit of background on nitrous oxide um, it's, it's a, it's, it's the third most concentrated greenhouse gas. So we tend to hear a lot about um, carbon dioxide and, and methane, yeah. um, but a little bit less about about uh, nitrous oxide. Um, but it's, it's important because for kind of the same amount of gas, it has almost 300 times the warming potential. So the ability to kind of drive climate warming as carbon dioxide Um and it's kind of as a double whammy, it also depletes the ozone layer. Um, so it's a problematic gas. Um, and basically, we've shown that um, in this study, we've been increasing the amount of nitrous oxide that's going to the atmosphere um, at a rate that exceeds kind of the worst case scenarios um, that were put forth by the, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC. Um, and right. most of those emissions are coming from, from agriculture
1: okay so why you said this is one of the first big studies that has been done on this why has it taken so long then for something that is so significant
9: um, I mean a lot of attentions obviously been been um, given to the other two greenhouse gases just because they're much more concentrated um, in terms of kind of previous research on n2o there were you know studies kind of in different nations and and, uh, different contexts. But this is the first time sort of a a large international group of scientists have all really come together and said, okay, let's put all of our numbers in in context with each other and figure out, you know, what's really going on with this, with this cycle.
1: Okay. So what really is going on here? How damaging is agriculture to this?
9: So what we found is that almost half of the annual emissions um, going to the atmosphere of, of nitrous oxide are from human sources. And of that, about 70% um, is, is from agricultural soils. Um, so this is this is a problem because, you know, moving forward, we're obviously still going to have to grow food. Plants are still going to need nitrogen. Um, and so basically there's not sort of an easy quick fix for this. We can't, you know, switch to renewables, for example. Like we, we need to continue to use nitrogen in soils. And so it's going to take kind of a lot more strategic um, approaches to really manage how much nitrogen is getting applied to, to mm-hmm. soils and kind of when we do that so that we're not you know adding excess or wasteful nitrogen um, to soils
1: is there an appetite to do this do you think is there an awareness dr. member about this problem
9: N- not at the moment no yeah. I, I mean a lot of a lot of kind of existing um, research dedicated to kind of reducing fertilizer loads to soils has been focused um, more from like a water quality standpoint, you know, if you load too much fertilizer to fields, it goes downstream and you end up with situations like we see, you know, for example, in Lake Erie with these big harmful scummy algal blooms that, that they have every summer. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is kind of some, some research for, or quite a lot of research from that direction. Um, and so there are kind of existing best management practices um, that have been proposed and applied really successfully in different places around the world to kind of help mitigate um, these uh sort of the excess fertilizer that's in soils um, you know for example um, in the European Union they had this nitrates directive that they applied and it was basically just sort of a series of of criteria and and sort of a, a a plan that they put forth to kind of help reduce the amount of nitrate getting into their water and it, it can currently help them really reduce their nitrous oxide emissions as well.
1: So then what is it that you think uh, we should take away from all of this then is it the fact that we can't just always focus on CO2?
9: Partly that. Um, partly, I think it also kind of goes back to the fact that um, we should try to mitigate CO2 because we have much clearer sort of pathways to reduce those, those greenhouse gases versus um, in terms of nitrous oxide, it, it, it may be quite a bit more difficult. And so, um, you know, we, we kind of know what we need to do for the other greenhouse gases and, and have a path forward if we were willing. Um, and so...
1: That's the scary part, though. From what you just say there, we already know about yeah. those other ones and what we need to do, and we're not necessarily doing it. Now we have another problem. Are we going to necessarily do this too?
9: Yeah, I don't know. Um, it's a,
1: that's the tough. Yeah, yeah, that is that, the tough question. Tough question. Yeah. yeah. So, what is next for your research then?
9: Um, I mean, for my personal research, I do a lot of stuff on on inland waters and and trying to kind of figure out how inland waters contribute to um, greenhouse gas emissions. So you know, it'll be taking ni- these nitrous oxide valleys and trying to kind of put them in the context of the other two greenhouse gases as well and sort of um, see what it means in right. terms of climate warming in general moving forward.
1: Well, this one's fascinating. Dr. Mavera, thanks for your time.
9: Yeah, thanks so much for having me.
1: That's Dr. Taylor Mavera, who's the author of this study and a Hutchinson Fellow at the School of the Environment at Yale University, looking at the impact of nitrous oxide, which is widely used in agriculture and how that is also contributing uh, to climate change, even though it doesn't get as much attention Something like CO2. Uh, he was the master and he will be missed. Music legend Eddie Van Halen passed away yesterday at the age of 65. He had on and off been battling different kinds of cancer for about 10 years now. And boy, did I ever spend the afternoon learning a lot about him. What an amazing talent that he had. To talk more about all of that, we're joined now by uh, music publicist Eric Alper. Good morning, Eric.
2: Good morning. Thanks for having me this morning.
1: Well, I heard so many stories, which I'm sure you already knew, about Eddie Van Halen. (laughs) For instance, that one about the way he played the guitar solo on Michael Jackson's Beat It. In one take, no rehearsal, just walked in and did it?
2: Yeah, and he didn't actually tell his front man of Van Halen, David Lee Roth, that he was going to do it. Because David Lee Roth didn't like Michael Jackson. He saw him as competition. So Eddie Van Halen didn't tell anybody that he was doing it. And here we were all music snobs, you know. The metal people didn't hang out with the people who like disco and so forth. And then Eddie Van Halen walks in, listens to the song once, does the guitar song, uh, the uh, solo, and does it for free, and what? walks out. And, and and ironically, the the so- the album that Van Halen was working on called 1984. That's the one that has Jump in Panama. It was stuck at the number two position on Billboard for weeks and weeks and weeks, never hitting number one because Michael Jackson's Thriller was there for 36 <laughs> weeks.
1: Wow. Like, and he, he never learned how to read music.
2: No. I mean, you know, that family was broke. They had no money. They didn't certainly have money for uh for instruments so not only did he literally have to learn how to play the guitar from scratch is every time that he looked at those fancy pedals or or you know tricks and boxes that all the other guitars had he realized that he was never going to be able to afford them so he better figure out how to use his brain and his fingers in order to kind of learn how to play and recreate what people were doing on stage and that's where All of it comes from, it's just that passion that those greats have, whether we're talking about Eddie Van Halen or anybody else in business or in art, when nobody is looking, that's when you practice. And Eddie Van Halen certainly did that for thousands of hours.
1: And is it fair to say, like he once was asked, I I saw that, uh, you know, why didn't you ever make a solo album? And he said he felt he didn't need to because whatever he wanted to do, he did with Van Halen, (laughs) even with all the changes and the different people. That really was his band.
2: Yeah, you know, he was absolutely that driver of the band. There are very few bands in music history that changed lead singers and and had, you know, just as much or even more success. Genesis was one of them with Peter Gabriel and, yeah. of course, Phil Collins and maybe ACDC. And other than that, there hasn't been a lot that have had two singers in David Lee Roth who were just so fun and so energetic. And then, you know, the more adult rock and roll of Sammy Hagar and and, you know, I think that's what... When people talk about that, there's no good bands out there, or that I don't know what to listen to. I think they're really talking about that spirit of rock and roll that that Eddie Van Halen certainly brought to music.
1: How uh, how much of a talent was it? Like we know it was a huge talent, but when you, would you put him as one of the greatest of all time?
2: Yeah, I put him right up there with Jimi Hendrix, maybe, and Jimmy Page. One, two, and three completely interchangeable with Jimmy and and, uh, Jimmy from, uh, from, from Led Zeppelin. And I think probably even, you know, even higher as time goes on, because when something like this happens, their streams go through the roof, their sales goes through the roof, and who knows, there might be a new guitar god out there in five years that was influenced because, unfortunately, of Eddie's passing.
1: And let's talk about the breakthrough album that they had. You mentioned 1984. How significant was that for them?
2: Well, if you were between the ages of right now, 35 and 50, you probably remember watching much music and it yeah. seems like every third video <laughs> yes. was Jump yeah. or Panama or Hot for Teacher or they were, you know, on every single MTV music video award show for years and, and that, I mean, so massive. Even before that album, they were selling 15 million copies in three years of their first three records. If they would have quit back then, we still would have been talking about them today. This morning of of the influence, but then that just brought him into that stratosphere of just nonstop touring and and uh, still one of the you know two um, rock bands in history to have sold more than 10 million copies for two separate albums. It's, it's unheard of at the time. And, and unfortunately, you know, it's one of those things where you realize just how big they were only when you're looking back and yeah. saying, wow, there's not too many bands that scale those heights.
1: That is so true. Eric, thanks so much for your time this morning.
2: Thanks so much for having me. We'll talk
1: soon. Yes, that's Eric Alper, music publicist, remembering Eddie Van Halen for us. Amazing stories. Amazing talent.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: Let's talk about some federal politics, shall we? We have been seeing lots of poll results when it comes to our provincial election here but there's some new polling out of Ottawa this morning that shows Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's popularity has remained fairly consistent. So let's find out more about that. Joining us now is Ipsos Public Affairs CEO Daryl Bricker to talk about this poll done exclusively for Global News. Good morning, Daryl. Good morning. I found these results really interesting because so much has happened, right? The Conservatives got a new leader. Erin O'Toole has been, you know, quite effective in the House of Commons, but doesn't look like a whole lot has changed.
2: Yeah,
3: the Liberals uh, got a little bit of a bounce, so they have uh, created about a five-point gap between themselves and the Conservatives, but uh, um, mostly, I would say, interestingly enough, in the province of British Columbia and in, uh, in Ontario. And when you take a look at who the people are um, that have rallied a bit more to the flag, it's actually older voters, not younger voters. So I, I wonder if that's uh, you know maybe a bit more habitual related to the Liberal brand and uh, and the need to, uh, I guess, pay attention to what's going on in Ottawa. So we'll see if this is an enduring thing. It hasn't proven to be very enduring through this crisis, though.
1: So where do the parties sit at this point?
3: Uh, we have the Liberals in the mid-30s, so they're about 35, and we have the Conservatives down around uh, around uh, closer to 30, so there's about a five-point five cap. But we've got the NDP uh, at around 20, uh, which is uh, uh, if they got that in an election campaign would be the second best they'd ever performed in an election. So uh, it's quite competitive out there. Uh, they're not experiencing at the federal level, the same type of, um, I would say, uh, performance enhancement that's taken a place uh, as a result of COVID at some of the, pro- for some of the provincial governments. Mm-hmm. Although I think as we get into the second wave, that's going to be a bit more of a challenge for them. Uh, but the the liberals, you know, Don't seem to be able to break out, and the Conservatives, even with a new leader, uh, really aren't catching up. So we're kind of stuck.
1: It sure sounds like it then. So have you noticed any kind of changes over the last six months that we've been in this thing?
3: No, I'd say most of them are sort of fluctuating within very narrow bands. The biggest challenge for the Conservative Party is just that, you know, we're not in a regular partisan environment. So governments are are seen as being more like public service agencies than... um, than like, uh, like normal partisan political institutions. Uh, where the, the Liberals got themselves in trouble previously and where the, where the prorogation took place, where the, the House of Commons was stood down, uh, was uh, that uh, the Liberals were really suffering from that in comparison to other governments in, 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 the, uh, in the nation. So uh, they've come back out, they've had their speech from the throne, they've got back on more of this public service-type footing, and that's why you're, we're seeing the Prime Minister almost every day out there, uh, you know, sitting in the, uh, sitting in on the healthcare briefings right. and that kind of thing, because they've got to take on more of that position that uh, that some of the provincial governments have uh, have established. So uh, I would say so successfully through the course of this pandemic.
1: That's so interesting what you say though about perhaps people's perceptions of government have changed a little bit. That if you do view it as government needs to do something right now, maybe in regular times you don't think the government should be that involved, but this is an exception.
3: Yeah, so it's, it, it, Canadians um, in time of crisis turn to the governments for leadership. So what their expectation is, is that they're going to perform as public service organizations. They're there to help and to lead. Mm-hmm. They're not there to do things for partisan political advantages, which is why the, the WE scandal was so difficult for the, for the, for the federal liberal right. party. But in British Columbia, for example, although you know calling the election when they did might be seen as a as a, a different uh, uh, you know a, a different characterization of what the government's been up to, but the Horton government's done pretty well on this. And you can go right across the country, uh, and you can see very few exceptions to governments not experiencing um, all-time highs in terms of performance relative to public opinion. You know, in Ontario, Quebec, Alberta's down a little bit, but they've got other issues. But almost every single government is experiencing. Um, Relative highs in terms of people's acceptance of performance because they want them. The public wants them to perform well. They're public service organizations that are leading us through a crisis, not partisan political institutions—at least not at the moment.
1: And right, did it break down by gender? Were there any differences, men versus women?
3: Yeah, and we—that's a really good question, Stephen, because we always have a conversation about the gender gap, but there's yeah. two gender gaps in Canada. There's the gender gap that the conservatives have with women. they don't do as well with women as they do with men and it's a pretty big gap like over 10 points but the liberals have the same problem except the other way they don't do as well with women as they they don't do as well with men as they do with women so if this was an election that was held only among men um the conservative party would win a majority right if this was an election only held among women the liberal party would win a majority so the, the gap goes both ways not only do the Conservatives have to improve their uh, their uh, uh, position with female voters in Canada, the Liberal Party has to improve its position with male voters in Canada.
1: interesting, too. And so was it obviously, there's the regional differences as well, but those seem to stay fairly static.
3: Uh, The Liberals are up a bit in British Columbia, uh, but then again, small sample sizes. Uh, They're up a bit in Ontario, which is really damaging for the Conservatives, because that's where they have to win the election. But the place where the Liberals have not established the lead that they need in order to form a majority is is Quebec, where the bloc Québécois is still very competitive. The Liberals have a bit of a lead, but it's not Mm -hmm. big enough.
1: Interesting stuff. Daryl, thank you.
3: My pleasure.
1: Thanks. That's Daryl Bricker, Ipsos Public Affairs CEO, talking about the latest polling that they have done for Global News, taking a look at the federal party picture and where things stand fairly steady, actually. Uh, The Prime Minister's popularity in terms of the Liberal Party, fairly consistent. I thought there would be more of a bump for Aaron O'Toole as the new leader of the Conservatives. He got quite a lot of publicity, chance for people to get to know him. That has not yet happened
0: but we'll see what unfolds. This is mornings with Simi.
1: All right. We're talking about masks this morning.
4: Yes, we are, because Canada just hit a record of of new cases for a single day, 2,364 new cases in one day. BC reported 102 cases yesterday, so not a record for us. But we are tracking by Friday to hit a total of 10,000 cases overall here in this province. And interestingly enough, I actually received an email from from someone yesterday named Jesse. I won't say where they live. They said, I have a question. What do you do if you have a family member who refuses to wear a mask? Jesse said, because I have a family member who is coming to our families, in brackets, small, Thanksgiving dinner. So what should I do? I thought that was just such a timely and interesting question for anybody who will be visiting their family this Thanksgiving. What do you do if you have a family member who isn't complying with the rules?
1: So, okay, I guess I have questions. Do they mean they want this? They want people to wear a mask when they're like socializing at their house for this small Thanksgiving dinner? Or this person just doesn't wear a mask like ever to go into stores or anything like that?
4: Mm. See, my impression was that this family member doesn't wear them when they go into stores. They don't really believe in, oh, in wearing masks or they just don't commonly wear masks out and about. So now you have this person saying, well, I'm supposed to visit this family member this upcoming weekend. I'm supposed to have dinner with them. You know, oh. Do I want to be interacting with this person? Because I know, you know, I've been hearing through the family grapevine that they're not wearing their mask or they really don't want to or don't believe in wearing a mask. Mm, that
1: would make me uncomfortable because like some of us have worked so hard to keep our bubbles really small, you know. I mean, yeah. my my closest friend. I haven't seen her in months, and normally we would spend Thanksgiving together, uh, and we, we we spent, for the last 20 years, we have spent everything. I make turkey for oh, wow. her and her husband, and we will not be doing that this year uh, because she is, I'm bubbled. She is bubbled in a very strict bubble uh, because she also works in a long-term care home. So ah. she can't, like, you know, I even we, we agreed, like, oh, no, it's just not possible for her to come over because she can't even expand that bubble in any way, shape, or form. So, yeah, th- that's frustrating ready then when you hear stories like that yeah
4: it is and you know big respect to your friend for for taking it so seriously of course she has to and, and it's really good she to does hear that. she absolutely does yeah i know these are conversations that we've had in my own family when you talk about the size of the bubble because there are some grandkids or nieces and nephews who are now back in school once again yeah so, so we have to be even more yeah. careful Exactly. And, you know, if you're now interacting with that, you know, aunt or uncle who has nieces and nephews who are in school, suddenly now you are expanding your bubble to include all the kids at that school as well or all the kids in that cohort. Yeah. So I think that these bubble conversations are something that people are going to be having uh, continually through the fall, but especially with Thanksgiving coming up. You know, what do you do if, if you know, you have a family member who has a really large bubble bubble if you could even call it a bubble at that point it's not or it's not not at that point it's uh, or they don't take it seriously it's the the dome from the stephen king novel that's what it is (laughs) i love it or on the other hand if they don't take it seriously and they're not wearing
1: a mask yeah listen i'm really gonna miss her because she's the one who did all the dishes I (laughs) I did the cooking, I did the cooking, and then she did the cleanup, and boy was that ever fantastic. So it is. This is a hardship for me to not have her here. But you're right. What to do about a relative or a friend who just refuses to do that, and then is going to be coming over, and you're going to spend time with them? I just I don't know. These days, Dr. Henry said the other day, we are flattening the curve again, and I would be very reluctant to change anything that we're doing in that regard right now.
4: Yeah, I mean, I don't know if you heard this story out of Toronto, but police charged Two people with failing to comply with federal quarantine rules. So this story, you know, it's so nutty. Basically, these people came back from being abroad. You're supposed to quarantine for 14 days to monitor your symptoms. You stay, you know, in a very, very small bubble, just, you know, alone. And then, you know, after that you're able to go out in in public once again, once it's deemed safe. So not only did they not quarantine properly, but they broke their quarantine to people in their thirties. They broke their quarantine by attending an anti-mask oh, rally. So 500 people participated in this anti-mask rally. So, of course, they're not wearing masks. And there's 500 people gathered together. This couple break
1: quarantine, and that's where they go. They go to the anti-mask rally. So now they're being criminally charged. Well, yeah. Have they not seen the numbers in Toronto, in the Toronto area, the problems they've been having? and Even with testing now, they're not even doing contact tracing because they said they're so overwhelmed with the number of people getting tests. Yeah, absolutely. In Ontario, they just had
4: 548 new cases yesterday. Seven more people died. That brings their total case count up to 5,500, or sorry, 55,000, um, 55,362 55, people so far Unreal. in Ontario who've contracted the virus. And They've done 4 million tests. So, you know, there's a lot, of, a lot of people who have been falling ill with the virus there. It's certainly something to be taking seriously no matter where you are in the country.
1: Would you not go then to this event if you knew there was going to be somebody there who had been mm. not as careful, not, you know, not as stringent, doesn't believe in wearing masks? Would you say, you know what, I'm going to sit this one out. I'm going to stay home. Now, by this event, do you mean the, the Thanksgiving dinner anti no, rally no, 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 no. or you mean the Thanksgiving dinner? <laughs> I mean the Thanksgiving dinner. Would you skip it? Ah, that's a that's a great
4: question. I would be inclined to. Ah, that's you know what? That's a great question for the buzz line as well. 604-331 buzz. How do you deal with a family yeah. member like this? Would you sit that family dinner out? I think I might. Yeah. I yeah.
1: think I might
0: actually do that. Would All right. you as well?
1: Thank you, Nikki. Thanks, me. We've been very lucky over the last six months or so since this pandemic started to have certain people who have managed to explain it to us in ways that we can understand and bring that information home to us. And, of course, one of the best of that is Jason Tetro. He has been on with us countless times during COVID-19, explaining it to us, our response to it, what we need to be doing. Well, Jason's multi-award winning podcast, The Super Awesome Science Show, is back for another season. And Jason is back with us to talk about it. Hello, Jason.
5: Hello there.
1: It's so nice to have you on for something that's not some kind of COVID-19 emergency at this point.
5: I know. Uh, And yet my show actually has had to pivot from things like ufology and mixology to, uh, unfortunately, understanding a little bit more about what's happening with COVID-19.
1: Yeah, so what are you going to be exploring this season?
5: So what we're doing is we're going to be talking about some of the big controversial topics that people just seem to be confused about, and we're going to give you the science that actually comes from the people who have done the work. You have to understand, um, you know, for me, infectious disease research was 30 years of my life, and I've made numerous contacts and colleagues along the way, and I brought them onto the show to have these discussions so that you get information that you can use, like, literally as soon as you finish listening to the podcast.
1: (laughs) Okay, that's the kind of stuff I think people like, but what kind of
5: information? So we're going to be talking about uh, airborne infection. Actually, we're going to be talking with Stephen Rogak from the UBC about that next week, so you've got to tune in. Um, we're going to be also talking about what happens when panic sets in. Um, you know, is it only toilet paper that sends to run away? Uh, we're also going to speak a little bit about grief and, and, you know, what happens when you do find yourself either infected or you find someone who happens to be infected who you love and and how you go through that process. We're also going to talk a little bit about vaccines and, and when we get back to travel, what are we going to do? Um, but everything that you're going to hear about relates to your day-to-day activities and how you can take this information and help you either to calm your mind, calm your soul, or mm-hmm. actually protect your lungs.
1: Now, Jason, you're an infectious disease expert, so you know that information changes, right? That's the way kind of epidemiology works. But do you think the general public has struggled with that?
5: I think what has happened is that we've been talking about um, terms that are normally used within, you know, a, a specific um, environment or a specific subject matter. And we're trying to get people to understand that without giving them all the background. And I think the perfect example happens to be something that you have seen numerous times. You remember those graphs that uh, uh, Dr. Henry has shown where right. we talked about 50%, 60%, 7%, 80%?
1: Yeah.
5: I mean, for me, that makes absolutely perfect sense. But for somebody who doesn't really understand what a contact actually is, it makes it very difficult for them to understand. So let me put it to you this way. Um, For every average adult, we go through about 25 to 30 contacts a day, which means that we would probably be reducing that to 15 or less a day. Now, children, especially uh, children who are in school, they can have up to 300 contacts a day. Wow. So if you actually reduce that down to 60%, you know, it's coming down to about 200. Now, thankfully, we can do that. And this is what BC has been doing. And that's one of the reasons why you're not seeing this explosion of cases like you normally would with RSV, influenza, and other respiratory viruses. So when it comes down to it, what you see is in those graphs actually has a lot of information behind it. And I think that's what we're trying to do with the Super Awesome Science Show is give you some perspective as to what those numbers really mean to your life, as opposed to just seeing graphs that you kind of look at and go, "Mm, I don't really understand what that means.
1: Now, is there a question, like a burning question you have that you really want to tackle this season?
5: I think for me, it really happens to be the vaccine because we're really heading into uncharted territory. And uh, Peter Hotez, I'm sure you've heard of him. Everybody's heard of him. He's a good friend of mine. We actually sit down and we have a nice chat about vaccines, what he's been doing because he's been in vaccines for as long as I've been in infectious disease research. And so it's a really great discussion. Um, It's coming up in a few weeks. And I think it's going to give you a perspective as to why we have such um, a focus on vaccines, Mm. but also why this is such an impressive time because we've got vaccines from all sorts of different environments and 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 sciences and it's just going to be fascinating and it's not about who's going to get to the poll first it's about how many of them are going to be available for all of us
1: all right jason thank you and good luck with the new season
5: now uh, thank you so much take care
1: you too that's jason Tetro, infectious disease expert and host of the super awesome science show podcast which is kicking off a new season so make
0: sure you check it out This is Mornings with Simi.
6: They didn't study the combination of diseases, which is what the fish experience in the wild, uh, and they left off sea lights, which have clearly not been under control lately, and the farms can't control them anywhere in the world.
1: Now, that is Jay Richland with the David Suzuki Foundation. He spoke to us last week. They're one of the groups uh, very concerned about a study on how farmed salmon impact wild salmon. This, of course, has been a hot topic in B.C. for years now. And they were concerned that not enough attention was paid in this report to the impact of sea lice. So we thought let's get some response to this from the Department of Fisheries and Oceans. So joining us now is Jay Parsons, the Director of Aquaculture, Biotechnology, and Aquatic Animal Health with Fisheries and Oceans Canada. Jay, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, and good morning. How much emphasis was there put on studying sea lice when it comes to the effect that farm salmon have on wild salmon?
7: So sea lice are a naturally occurring parasite that occurs in the water of BCs, And it's been around for thousands of years. And they naturally um, infect wild fish. The department has been conducting studies on sea lice for quite a long time. And there exists a real um, large knowledge of sea lice um, and the impacts and interactions of sea lice between wild fish and farmed fish. And using that body of knowledge... The department has provided um, science advice to our aquaculture managers that they have used to put in place measures to ensure that um, any harm as a result of sea lice from fish farms is minimized.
1: So what does that body of knowledge tell us, though? Are there concerns about harm?
7: Certainly there is the potential for harm from sea lice on wild Pacific salmon, especially the smaller juvenile salmon. And that's why the department, um, based on the science advice and the research that we've conducted, as well as research from other people, by the way, um, this has been used to inform measures by the department to ensure that the, any potential impacts from fish farms are minimized.
1: I guess the question there, Jay, would be then if we know that there are the potential for some negative impacts, why are we even allowing this?
7: The, um, again, um, the, the department has put measures in place through policies, through regulations, through conditions of licenses to minimize those impacts so that there is no harm to the wild fish.
1: And so, do you think that then there is no harm right now to the wild fish from the sea lice from the farm salmon?
7: Again, from a science perspective, we've conducted a lot of research into looking into these uh, interactions, and that has formed um, that has informed uh, aquaculture management's decisions around managing this industry. There's been a number of um, regulations and conditions that have been in place for a long time. New measures were recently introduced and I know our aquaculture management colleagues um, continue to consider other measures um, as well as continue their discussions um, especially with the First Nations uh, in the Discovery Islands areas. There is a series of consultations that are now underway to have discussions with them to hear what their concerns are um, about farms in those areas.
1: So, then, Jay, if there is such a large body of knowledge, as you said there, and that you believe the DFO is, is putting into place these measures, where do you think then these concerns still come from?
7: Um, uh, again, um, I think, um, yes, I, I mean, I understand there are concerns from a number of different uh, people, including um, First Nations. Um, we, uh, we are holding discussions and consultations with them um, to present and talk to them about the science as well as the measures that uh, are in place and to hear further about what those concerns are and try to address those concerns. Um, but also, um, we do continue to undertake much research um, to help inform management's decisions and their risk-based adaptive management uh, uh, process that they have in place for um, consideration of additional measures in the future.
1: Yeah, what kind of considerations then for additional measures in the future? What are we looking at here?
7: Um, really, the, um, those measures, I would encourage you to talk to our uh, aquaculture management colleagues who are the ones um, that are um, having those discussions and doing those considerations. Um, I'm certainly well aware um, that the department has announced recently, earlier this year, new measures. And I know they are considering other measures, for example, around area-based approaches to aquaculture management. So, But um, our aquaculture management colleagues would certainly be able to elaborate much further on the management measures that they've put in place and are
2: considering.
1: So when you do your work then, Jay, are you just looking at the impact of sea lice, or do you take into consideration that fact that we have a lot of concerns about the numbers of wild salmon stocks.
7: The the department uh, undertakes and puts a, a high priority on investigating all impacts on wild salmon. Um, the recent um, reports that we've released the risk assessments. For example, um, we identified um, what are the known bacterial and viral pathogens on Atlantic salmon farms in the Discovery Island area, and we undertook a series of risk assessments to specifically look at what those impacts were on Fraser River sockeye salmon. Mm -hmm. So we undertook a robust, um, thorough analysis of what those uh, impacts were to to make a determination on what the risk would be to Fraser River sockeye salmon. So that's just one example of some of the type of Right. research and advice that we've done, um, but there continues to be research on many aspects related to impacts on wild Pacific salmon that the department undertakes, and certainly as that new knowledge becomes available, that does help inform our aquaculture managers and our other um, resource managers into um, adaptive management measures that they might wish to adopt.
1: All right, Jay, thank you for your time on this today.
7: Well, thank you very much for the opportunity to appear on your show today.
1: That is Jay Parsons, Director of Aquaculture, Biotechnology and Aquatic Animal Health at Fisheries and Oceans Canada, talking about the continuing concerns of sea lice on farmed salmon and how they affect wild salmon stocks. I guess my question is, after all these years, and he says there's all this knowledge and body of work out there, then why do we still have questions? Why are there still concerns? How can we not answer that definitively? Because I think for a lot of people, it's still not completely settled. If you want to weigh in, simmy at cknw.com.
0: This is Mornings with Simi. All
1: right, let's talk about the BC election campaign. One of the interesting things we heard yesterday, NDP leader John Horgan committing to a silver alert program for missing seniors if the NDP government is elected. Our next guest would certainly have something to say about that. It's Sam No. He became a Silver Alert advocate after his own father went missing in 2013. Sam, thanks for being back with us.
6: Hi, thanks for having me.
1: So what did you think when you heard this? You must have been a bit happy about that.
6: Uh, you know, for sure, I was quite excited. Um, but, you know, but however, regardless of who we have in government in the fall, I mean, missing seniors... With dementia, as a pressing issue. I mean, this is a growing problem with our Asian population.
1: And so tell us about the system that you envision that you have been campaigning for. How would this work?
6: So we've been envisioning a geo-targeted system because critics of the program are concerned that too many alerts would be issued. Um, however, we also do have to realize that not all seniors, missing seniors, would reach the alerting level um, as well as... Um, You know, we're able to geo-target these alerts to issue alerts to relevant communities instead of notifying the whole province of British Columbia. Right. Because we're also, uh, lost person behavior research does tell us they only travel within a few kilometers from their last point seen.
1: Okay, so if you're saying then, let's say a senior went missing in Port Coquitlam, then the alert would only be pushed to people in Port Coquitlam.
6: Within a small radius. So there's research that tells us uh, 95% of the time they're found within a five-kilometer radius. And so, you know, there's there would be no need to notify the whole province or the whole greater Vancouver for a missing person in Port Coquitlam.
1: Okay, so what what kind of trouble have you had getting this launched, Sam? Like, what are the, the fights against it for?
6: And, and so one of the main concerns has been alert fatigue, which which we've been talking about right yes. now. And it's absolutely frustrating. We need to get past this, uh, you know, dementia is a growing problem. You know, 6 out of 10 do wander. And so uh, we need to continue this discussion Um as this pro- problem continues to get worse every year.
1: And I see this all the time. I see police issue, you know, alerts saying, please be on the lookout for this senior. Or this, And I know that, you know, for the most part, people respond very well, but do you feel that there's some people who still, that still don't get those messages?
6: Uh, you know, I, I think there's quite a bit of uh, public support for this. Uh, we saw with my, my father's disappearance seven years ago, uh, General Sangara went missing earlier this year. There's a right. lot of public support. Um, You know, I I do believe that we have to be more efficient at issuing these alerts. And so if someone went missing in your neighborhood, most likely you're going to pay attention. But, you know, if someone went missing out in Vancouver and you don't even live there, you know, it would be irrelevant to you. So I think there are tremendous opportunities to improve uh, these alerts.
1: So what would your advice be to the political parties then?
6: Uh, you know, let's continue this discussion. We've been talking about this for the last seven years. This problem is even far worse than when my father went missing. And and so, you know, I'm happy about the news. But, of course, I will hold them accountable to it if they do get elected.
1: Sam, when your dad went missing, how much of a struggle was it to get the word out there?
6: Oh, you know, uh, I mean, we were chasing sightings, you know, behind a couple days. And there were confirmed sightings of him. But words spread quite slowly, and I truly do believe if we had the Silver Alert in place that, you know, he he may have made it home that day. Right,
1: if something like this had existed. That's correct. Sam, thank you very much for your time on that.
6: Thanks for having me.
1: That's Sam now. He's an advocate for Silver Alert. You may remember the story of when his dad went missing back in 2013. And ever since then, Sam has been an advocate for having some kind of Silver Alert system It was promised in the NDP campaign platform yesterday. But as you heard Sam there say, we need to kind of make it a little bit more specialized. He said geo-target that so that not everybody is getting it. He doesn't want to have alert fatigue. People need to pay attention when they get an alert kind of put right in front of them. And he thinks that would make the difference here. So what do you think? Is this a good idea? Would you like to see this happen?
0: This is Mornings with Simi. I don't know much about the movement other than I understand they like me very much, uh,
7: which I appreciate, but I don't know much about the movement.
1: That is U.S. President Donald Trump talking about the QAnon conspiracy theories that seem to run amok on social media. Well, yesterday we heard the news that Facebook has taken the extraordinary step of deleting all the pages that are associated with that QAnon conspiracy. We wanted to talk about how significant this is. So joining us now is Jane Litmanenko, who's a senior reporter at BuzzFeed, specializing in disinformation. Jane, thanks for being with us.
8: Thanks for having me.
1: How big of a deal do you think this was?
8: So this is just the latest ban that Facebook has announced against the QAnon um, conspiracy or mass delusion. And it's, uh, it's the biggest step after a series of bans, but it still leaves some loopholes for people who support um, this belief system to remain on the platform. So while this is a big deal it's still not. It's still not as comprehensive as people who are studying this. Um, this uh, be- set of beliefs uh, are requesting.
1: Right. How bad has it gotten, though? Like for Facebook to take a step like this when they have been pressured to do similar things, right, for years now. Why now?
8: Why now is a great question. Uh, the QAnon. Uh, the QAnon belief system which is quite insidious, has been around since 2017, and it has grown a lot over the last three years. And uh, this isn't the first time that Facebook announced a sort of a a blanket ban on a type of content. We've seen them say that they will remove anti-Muslim hate from their platform, for example, after the Christchurch shooting in New Zealand. So while while this is a big deal... Um, it, it feels like it's a, it's it's quite late uh, for them to be taking that step because the community has grown uh, quite large, and uh, the why now question lingers. It's it's less than thirty t- days before the election, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and uh, many researchers that uh, we've spoken to are wondering why this didn't happen sooner.
1: So you specialize in disinformation then how critical has this particular conspiracy theory been in terms of spreading disinformation?
8: It's been quite insidious and uh, this 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 conspiracy theory is particularly damaging when it comes to the coronavirus pandemic. Um early on people who believe in QAnon or QAnon related um, conspiracies didn't take the pandemic seriously. They are among groups of people who um, sort of either believe that the entire thing is faked, which would, would be quite a production, um, but they also um, oppose vaccines. Um, many of them oppose wearing masks. Um, so it's it's Uh, They've been a huge node uh, when it comes to spreading disinformation on social media.
1: It also sounds like it has become a bit of an umbrella thing, right? For anybody who doesn't believe in something or they believe in some kind of conspiracy theory, now they're under that umbrella too.
8: Yes, absolutely. And something that we saw this summer is even though QAnon um, grew out of another conspiracy that focused on Sort of bogus child trafficking as opposed to real child trafficking um it qno in itself didn't didn't take up this cause until this summer, so So, whereas when it started out, it was really uh, adamant about being a pro-Trump community, now many people who buy into offshoots of this belief system aren't necessarily supporters of the president. Some of them aren't even quite sure that they're supporters of QAnon, but they buy into the belief system. And... One of the um, one of the most prominent uh, recent actions that QAnon has or QAnon supporters have uh, uh, focused on is a campaign called Save the Children, where uh, there's there's this belief that Hollywood uh, people in Hollywood and politicians are sort of uh, trafficking, uh, Mm -hmm. trafficking children. Um, and of course, child trafficking is a real, real problem. Human trafficking is a real problem, but the conspiracy is very much removed from reality and has hindered real efforts, um, real efforts to help child trafficking victims.
1: So by not having this on there, though, do you think this will actually slow anything down? Has social media become the number one place where people disseminate these kinds of conspiracy theories?
8: Well, it's important to remember that Facebook is just one social media network. And especially with the ban that Facebook has announced, uh, Instagram, personal Instagram accounts might not be caught by it. It's still, the jury's still out on how effective this will be. And bans that Facebook has announced in the past have definitely been skirted um, and skirted widely. But we also have YouTube that is a huge, a huge place for QAnon um, supporters to gather, to watch videos, to um, converse. And Twitter has also, although it's, uh, it has announced its own QAnon bans in the past, it's also a huge place where they meet. But even outside of the major social media networks, QAnon started on a very niche anonymous forum on a corner of the internet right. that most people aren't aware of. So, so Facebook is just one part of a big problem.
1: Okay, so that's that's what I wonder too, because we've always had conspiracy theories, right, Jane? Like, but this these these ones just seem to be amplified now.
8: Yeah, absolutely. Conspiracy theories have always been part of uh, of human life. I mean, the the moon landing, you know, you name it. I don't want. Yeah. I don't want to. The Hollow Moon, even uh,
1: don't give them more to talk about. Yes, (laughs)
8: yes, (laughs) but uh, but the trouble is that whereas uh, previously there were a lot of barriers to communication um, from one conspiracy theorist to another, now um, these communities are gathering together with ease, and they are um, supporting one another. They're um, they're. Of uh, they have a place to go, they have a place to converse, and uh, that's, that's what's different this time.
1: So, wouldn't it be better than if a company like Facebook didn't wait until it was well established? Do they need something more robust to look at these things to nip them in the butt?
8: Yes, absolutely, and that's, that's uh, part of a bigger conversation regarding how social media companies address false and dangerous and extremist content on their platforms. We've seen them shut down communities that have uh, caused violence or we've seen them um, remove hateful posts after they get a lot of traction, mm-hmm. but it's tricky to understand how much of that enforcement um, happens before something terrible happens or before these communities grow. Um, like I said previously, QNON started in 2017 and and uh, it's grown a lot over the last three years. Um, there's There's no reason why it should have been allowed to do that.
1: Jane, thanks so much for your time on this today. Thank you very much for having me. Well, lovely to have you here. That is Jane Lipinenko, who's a senior reporter at BuzzFeed, specializing in disinformation, talking about Facebook's announcement yesterday that they are taking what is for them an extraordinary step of deleting all pages that are associated with that QAnon conspiracy. Will that make any kind of a difference, though? That we have to wait and see.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: I want to talk about a new study just out this morning, actually, that highlights the climate impact of nitrous oxide. And the study suggests that agriculture might be the biggest contributor to the problem. So let's break it down. What have we learned from this? Joining us now is Dr. Taylor Mavara, who's the author of this study and a Hutchinson Fellow at the School of the Environment at Yale University. Dr. Mavara, thank you for being with us. Thanks so much for having me, Simi. So what exactly did you look at in this study?
9: So this is a um, one of the first kind of comprehensive global nitrous oxide budgets that's um, been published. And so, just to give like a bit of background on nitrous oxide. Um, it's it's a, it's it's the third most concentrated greenhouse gas. So we tend to hear a lot about um, carbon dioxide and, and methane, yeah. um, but a little bit less about about uh, nitrous oxide. Um, but it's it's important because for kind of the same amount of gas, it has almost 300 times the warming potential. So the ability to kind of drive climate warming as carbon dioxide. Um, and it's kind of as a double whammy, it also depletes the ozone layer. Um, so it's a problematic gas. Um, and basically, we've shown that um, in this study, we've been increasing the amount of nitrous oxide that's going to the atmosphere um, at a rate that exceeds kind of the worst case scenarios um, that were put forth by the, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC. Um, and right. most of those emissions are coming from from agriculture.
1: Okay, so why you said this is one of the first big studies that has been done on this. Why has it taken so long, then, for something that is so significant?
9: Um, I mean, a lot of attention has obviously been, been um, given to the other two greenhouse gases just because they're much more concentrated. Um, in terms of kind of previous research at N2O, there were, you know, studies kind of in different nations and, and, uh, different contexts, but this is the first time sort of a a large international group of scientists have all really come together and said, okay, let's put all of our numbers in in context with each other and figure out, you know, what's really going on with this, with this cycle.
1: Okay. So what really is going on here? How damaging is agriculture to this?
9: So what we found is that almost half of the annual emissions, um, going to the atmosphere of, of nitrous oxide are from human sources. And of that, about seventy percent um, is is from agricultural soils. Um, so this is this is a problem because you know moving forward we're obviously still going to have to grow food. Plants are still going to need nitrogen, um, and so basically there's not sort of an easy, quick fix for this. We can't you know switch to renewables, for example. Like we we need to continue to use nitrogen in soils, and so it's going to take kind of a lot more strategic. Um, approaches to really manage how much nitrogen is getting applied to, to mm-hmm. soils and kind of when we do that so that we're not, you know, adding excess or wasteful nitrogen um, to soils.
1: Is there an appetite to do this? Do you think, is there an awareness, Dr. Mimbera, about this problem?
9: N- not at the moment, no. Yeah. I, I mean, a lot of a lot of kind of existing um, research dedicated to kind of reducing fertilizer loads to soils has been focused um more from like a water quality standpoint, you know, if you load too much fertilizer to fields, it goes downstream and you end up with situations like we see, you know, for example, in Lake Erie with these big harmful scummy algal blooms that, that they have every summer. Mm Um, so there is kind of some, some research or quite a lot of research from that direction. Um, and so there are kind of existing best management practices, um, that have been proposed and applied really successfully in different places around the world to kind of help mitigate, um, these, uh, sort of the excess fertilizer that's in soils. Um, you know, for example, um, in the European Union, they had this nitrates directive that they applied and it's basically just sort of a series of of criteria and, and sort of a, a a plan that they put forth to kind of help reduce the amount of nitrate getting into their water and it, it can currently help them really reduce their nitrous oxide emissions as well.
1: So then what is it that you think uh, we should take away from all of this then? Is it the fact that we can't just always focus on CO2?
9: Partly that. Um, partly, I think it also kind of goes back to the fact that um, we should try to mitigate CO2 because we have much clearer sort of pathways to reduce those those greenhouse gases versus um, in terms of nitrous oxide, it, it, it may be quite a bit more difficult. And so, um, you know, we, we kind of know what we need to do for the other greenhouse gases and, and have a path forward if we were willing. Um, and so...
1: That's the scary part, though. From what you just say there, we already know about yeah. those other ones and what we need to do, and we're not necessarily doing it. Now we have another problem. Are we going to necessarily do this too?
9: Yeah, I don't know. Um, it's a,
1: that's, a tough, yeah, yeah. That that's the tough. That's question. The question. Yeah, that is the tough question. Yeah. So, what is next for your research then?
9: Um, I mean, for my personal research, I do a lot of stuff on on inland waters and and trying to kind of figure out how inland waters contribute to um, greenhouse gas emissions. So you know, it'll be taking these nitrous oxide valleys and trying to kind of put them in the context of the other two greenhouse gases as well and sort of um, see what it means in right. terms of climate warming in general moving forward.
1: Well, this one's fascinating. Dr. Mavero. thanks for your time.
9: Yeah, thanks so much for having me.
1: That's Dr. Taylor Mavera, who's the author of this study and a Hutchinson Fellow at the School of the Environment at Yale University, looking at the impact of nitrous oxide, which is widely used in agriculture, and how that is also contributing uh, to climate change, even though it doesn't get as much attention as something like CO2.